Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jamie R. Abrams, Professor of Law at the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law. We will discuss her article, Legal Education's Curricular Tipping Point, which will be published in the Hofstra Law Review. So welcome to the show, Jamie. I'm, I'm so delighted to have you on. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's great to see you. Yeah, and I'm really excited to talk about your new article, which I understand is also very similar to a book chapter that you recently wrote. By way of sort of beginning the conversation, you know, you point out in the article that we're at a really kind of transitional moment in legal education, what with how things changed so dramatically during the COVID epidemic when we went almost entirely, or in many cases entirely, uh, online. And now we need to kind of, or maybe it's a moment in which we should be rethinking what legal education looks like. Broadly speaking, what do you think about that? And where should we be looking to look for examples or ideas about what we might want to do or change or make legal education look like in the future? I think we need to both look deeply to the past and also concretely in the present. And so that's sort of where this whole project came from. So the project um, Legal Education's Curricular Tipping Point is situated in the moment, sort of looking forward to exactly your question, where do we go from here? Do we just you know, shut the Zoom account down and go back to a classroom or do we actually transform? And in, in what we look to to answer that question, um, I'm particularly struck by what I call this sort of steady drumbeat of critical voices that for you know, over half a century have been standing on the margins of legal education, offering concrete and robust critiques about the effects of our dominant legal education pedagogies. And so interestingly, I went into the pandemic writing, as you referenced in your introduction, um, a book chapter for a handbook on feminism and the law. And that project was looking historically at what feminism's contributions have been to legal education. And I'm doing that at the same time, my kids are now staying at home and I'm trying to manage this transition to online. And so I, I think as we think about how to come out of this pandemic, we would do a huge disservice to a half a century of scholars in critical legal studies, critical race theory, um, feminism, queer theory, who have advocated for more inclusive, more thoughtful pedagogies. Um, and also, I think we have to be grounded in the present too. And so really in the article, I describe um, what I call dual disruptions in legal education. The first disruption is COVID and that happened without anyone's you know, anticipation. It was frenzied, it was flawed, it's imperfect, and it's certainly not a model for where we want to go. But it's also happening contemporaneous with another disruption, which is cries for racial justice. And so as we come out of this, every norm, everything we've ever thought about what a legal education experience looks like is up in the air. We have, you know, second and third year students who have barely been in a Socratic classroom, who have barely taken timed exams. So I think as we think about how to how to move forward. We need to listen to the voices who have for half a century been advocating for more inclusive classrooms, see what's happening in our communities where we need to center communities of color and their experiences and their demands more dominantly. 
And we also have a norm upheaval. We actually know we can teach differently. We can learn new things, us law professors. And so I think what what I describe in my larger project is that we're at a tipping point. And I think we would do, be doing a huge disservice to miss this tipping point and not come out of this pandemic with some concrete reforms and transformations to how we deliver legal education. For listeners who may not be as familiar with the history of feminism's impact on legal pedagogy and and law schools more generally, I wonder if you could kind of give a brief uh, kind of history lesson, I guess, as it were, because I, I thought it was really interesting the way you described how feminist ideas have inflected and changed, or at least tried to change, maybe in some cases, the way we approach legal education. Yes. The um, feminism's influence here, first, there's there's certainly a, a structural improvement, right? Women, you know, w- women initially. So for example, I'm a graduate of the Washington College of Law, where women, it was the first law school to admit women. And it was the sort of bread and butter of what they were offering. But what they were offering was a core traditional legal education that they happened to allow women. And even in allowing women, they did not allow persons of color. And so it was sort of one step forward for equality while perpetuating um, larger instances of inequality. So early on, feminism's um, contributions were really access-oriented, getting women into the profession, getting women into law teaching, into leadership positions, and then opening up, you know, bar libraries in courthouses and, you know, making the, the profession itself accessible to women. But for much of feminism's history, it was sort of business as usual. It was, you know, you, you're welcome to join the procession, but don't change the direction of it. And it was a largely conformist exercise. And so then we start to see, you know, through women's studies programs, feminism, um, communities emerging in scholarship, in law teaching. And that's where we really see this larger impact of feminism impacting the law. And so a lot of those reforms happened in things like you know, rape law, family law, criminal law, um, employment law. Um, But as to the legal education pedagogy, the curriculum of what we're doing in law school, that's where I think we've seen the least success. And so feminists have been um, challenging this idea of a perspectiveless approach. We, We teach law, I teach torts, for example, and, you know, this reasonable person. Well, who is this reasonable person? Do they share my experiences? Um, do they share the experiences of a person of color, of a Native American student? And so we pretend in our law school classrooms that we're learning this objective sort of abstract concept. But when we layer that and map that on to non-traditional students, to students of color, um, there is a disconnect happening there. And we're, we're normalizing and standardizing this sort of perspectiveless version of the law um, that's, that's not realistic. It's mythical. And so that's where um, feminists have been sort of calling out, along with critical race scholars, um, this, this fiction that what we're really doing is contributing to hierarchies and per- perpetuating those types of hierarchies that we should really be working with our law students to dismantle more thoughtfully. So are there areas in legal education or legal pedagogy where feminist ideas have been more successful in kind of provoking or promoting change in the way we think about how we do legal education or maybe areas where it's been less successful? And, and if so, sort of why the divide and, and, and where do you think it comes from? 
And I think clinical education is probably the strongest example of a feminist vision for legal education. And that's not to say that that feminist theorists, you know, were the, the sole community pushing for clinical clinical legal education at its own um, thriving movement on its own. Um, but it's aligned so nicely. I think it's a really strong model. Why? Because it's collaborative. It's not a sage on the stage. It's not power-centered and professor-centered. The professor is working side by side with, with a hierarchy of knowledge, but an equality of a role. And that role is, is to serve, to serve a community, to serve a client. And so we come together and we work collaboratively. We serve our community. We problem solve. We work creatively to solve problems. And that is a you know, a much more deconstructed approach. It's less hierarchical and it's more empowering. It it transitions students into being lawyers instead of leaving this sage on the stage where the professor controls all the information, controls the flow of the dialogue, controls which case books and stories get told. And the clinical model, I think, is really our strongest vision going forward for what a more inclusive classroom might look like and even how a law school might fit within its community more broadly. What would, uh, in your opinion, a feminist sort of perspective or approach to teaching, quote unquote, traditional law school classes look like? Or am I thinking too small, right? I mean, is it maybe that like thinking about traditional law school classes is itself the wrong way to go and we ought to be thinking differently about what legal education looks like kind of in a bigger picture sense? Good. So many interesting pieces wrapped up in that. First, I do think we need to think about what traditional legal education looks like because, um, and I describe in my larger project that we've had tremendous innovations in legal education, but they are built around and on top of the ancient architecture of the large Socratic classroom. The large Socratic classroom is driving the economics of law school. It drives like the, you know, the, the visual appearance and the, the way our buildings are designed. Um, so I do think when we're talking about what legal education looks like going forward, we can't be talking just about the clinics and the seminars and the really funky, cool innovations happening in other places in legal education. I think it's straight down the middle. What does it, the vast majority of that law school experience look like for our students? And it's still incredibly conformist, incredibly traditional. And so to your um, your framing of your question was, you know, what would this look like? And so I think in those more traditional spaces, even within that existing, you know, the large lecture style class, our classrooms need to be more student centered, more skills centered, um, and they need to be more community centered. So, you know, if you think about our typical law books, our law books are appellate cases where the state doesn't matter, the, the client doesn't really matter, the community in which the thing happened doesn't really matter. Um, and the students are sort of above it. We're hovering our students as, you know, like they're in a snow globe studying the law. Um, but instead, in, in a prior work called Reframing the Socratic Method, I, I tried to sketch out a vision where even in a Socratic classroom, we could be asking questions that are driven by the clients in that case or the community and the context in which that case emerged. And in doing so, we prepare students more for that clinical model in which they'll be doing the same thing. And we start to use that classroom, even if it's still in a Socratic context, or even if it's still a large lecture class, we start to empower our students to role play every single day of our classes as lawyers. There are some small advantages to these traditional classrooms in, in 
in their replication. Like we, you know, over and over and over, our students are reading cases and talking about cases. But if we could do that in a way that was student-centered, client-centered, skill-centered, community-centered, it would be very different. I think many of our law school classrooms, although certainly not all today, remain they remain professor-centered. And, and it really is a, a sort of inversion of the power dynamic of how we think about a class that, we're, that we need to move toward. So we're currently continuing to experience and are hope, hopefully on the, the tail end of the COVID epidemic, which has upended just about everything. And it certainly hasn't excluded legal education, which has changed of necessity pretty dramatically over the course of the last year or so. Um, to, to what extent do you think that the changes that we've made are consistent with or at least um, amenable to some of the kind of feminist inspired ideas that, that you're talking about? Um, and what, if anything, should we learn from this COVID epidemic experience in terms of legal education going forward? There are some things that we could celebrate and hang on to from what we've done. I mean, in a small sense, the entire transformation that legal education made was student-centered. We had students who, with tuition dollars who needed to finish their degrees, who needed a continuity of experience. And so, you know, what we did while, while, the, while the output is not perfect, right, it was flawed and frenzied. But it was student-centered. We owed our students a continuity of education. And we, you know, from in my experience in this um, pandemic, there have been more efforts to survey students about what was working and what wasn't, to learn from talented faculty who had a sense of what would work and what wouldn't, and actually to collaborate. So I went to so many programs this summer um, hosted across across institutions. So a coalition of family law professors coming together. Let's share. Let me tell you what I've done that's worked. Let me, you know, learn from you and see, you know, a, a, a cool model for a module that we could do. So there was a, an element of collaboration. There was also a systemic change, right? It was, again, not perfect, but it was everyone, every law school. And, and you know, whether we like it or not, we are sort of conformist institutions where, you know, you know, we sort of innovate around the margins, but due to accreditation and larger market forces, you know, we kind of lockstep together. And we all had, as law schools, had to lockstep together into this approach, as imperfect as it was. Um, but there was collaboration. It was widespread across all courses, big, small, male, female, senior, junior faculty. Um, but also, I do think in moving online, there is, there by necessity, has to be a bit of a diffusion of that professor-centered dynamic. I can barely even find myself in my own Zoom class, right? I'm teaching 54 students family law, and I, I, I try to get as many faces on the screen at once, and I just blend in with everyone else. I have the same failures as everyone else, forgetting to unmute. I have the same, you know, um, you know tech challenges, but also we're just literally all equal in that space. And so... Um, I think there are some some new ways online that students have been able to participate. You can participate in the chat. You could participate on discussion boards. You can participate. And we get out of this sort of dominant gunner vibe that, you know, the, the boldest voice in the room. You know, I'm thinking here particularly of Lonnie Guineer and the Becoming Gentleman Scholarship, the idea that in a traditional Socratic class, we value the bold, the confident, the, the self-assured student. But maybe the more reflective person who takes a minute to write a thoughtful question in the chat can be equally valued in this environment. And so I think um, in my paper, more particularly, I argue 
And in a more sort of fun yet provocative way that coming out of COVID, we need to, quote, cancel Kingsfield. And, you know, of course, cancel culture has its whole own political, you know, political controversy attached to it. But I use it in a more light way to sort of reflect that coming out of COVID, this idea of a presumptive reverence that we give to a dominant, you know, a a dominant face at the front of the classroom who has all the answers as being effective pedagogy needs to go. Not that, not that it can't still be effective pedagogy, but it doesn't deserve a presumptive reverence that just putting a smart, often, you know, male in front of a classroom, often white senior male in front of the classroom equals necessarily good pedagogy. And it, you know, here I'm thinking particularly of the work of presumed incompetent and all of the scholars that went into this incredible project, telling the stories of uh, marginalized experiences of faculty. And so, and it, it complicates us every day. Our students walk in and, you know, they, they revere a certain type of professor. And so I do think with this move to online, students have learned to revere some different things. They've learned to revere supportive professors, um, interactive professors, collaborative professors. And so coming out of it, I hope we keep that sort of diversity of reverence, you know, that, 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 you know, a dominant professor running a class can be revered, but it doesn't deserve a presumptive reverence, sort of anointed above all other pedagogies. It's interesting because for many years, I've heard people talk about flipping the classroom, but it seems like you're advocating something even more radical, sort of flipping the hierarchy of the classroom. I think that's exactly right. And in in the literature on moving to online teaching, the phrasing that really stuck with me when I first, I I began online teaching out of necessity, out of family separation and um, the need to commute. And so it didn't come out of a sort of organic interest that this was my pedagogical vision. So I really had my work to do to learn about what this might look like. Um, But the phrasing in online learning is that you're shifting the professor from a sage on the stage to a guide on the side. And, and I think that's exactly rep, represents um, the kind of flip that I'm describing. And it still positions the professor with, with you know, the intellect and experience and expertise to, to guide, right? It's not, um, it's not a complete loss of, of control or a loss of, of sort of content mastery, but it's an empowering, using that content to empower our students to go into their communities to do good work instead of standing there and disempowering students because they don't happen to know the answer to the question question that I wrote six years ago and have now asked every class, you know, since then. And so, you know, there's, it's, it's not a gotcha version. It's an empowering version, recognizing that students are there to learn, but we're going to empower them um, to, to, to believe in themselves and to acquire the skills they need to practice. To make it concrete, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about techniques or ideas or ways of approaching legal pedagogy you came across while writing this article and other related articles that you think are especially valuable and uh, effective that we should think about integrating into legal education in, in the future that maybe people haven't necessarily taken advantage of in the past. I have simply fallen in love with voice-based tools. And so I'm actually working on a work in progress that's um, forthcoming in the family court review um, this fall. Um, And it's going to focus on this exact topic. But voice-based tools, what I mean by that are sort of, you know, discussion boards out loud, you know, the chance for students to either record something like an argument, like a motion argument, 
or um, talk together, but using our actual voices. And especially with COVID, with the isolation, I mean, there's, until I teach my class, I go whole hours of the day without my voice, you know, even uttering anything other than, you know, sort of basic pleasantries. So I think in COVID, students were especially amenable to seeing each other and hearing each other. But the way that I particularly have used voice-based tools, and there are two particularly that I've used and liked, um, one is called VoiceThread, and it's, that one's particularly nice because it's it's made for student learning in our learning management platform. So things like um, Sakai or Blackboard or Twin or things like that, it can interface pretty nicely with a proper learning-based platform. Um, but what you can use it for all sorts of things. So you could prompt something sort of provocative discussion about a topic, like how do we handle the um, punitive approaches to non-payment of child support? And you could you know, give a, a provocative article to get students thinking about it, and then they weigh in with their responses. But by voice, you know, I, you know, with, with online commentary, you know, we, we throw words out so quickly. And using a voice-based tool, it, it involves, you know, tone, professionalism. Um, so I do it sometimes in response to a, a topic, but I do it much more often in response to a client. So I'll give a voicemail or I'll give an email and I'll ask my students to reply back to this message. So for example, you get a call from someone who is, you know, decided they're frustrated with their ex and they're not going to pay child support this month. What do we tell them? What, what legal advice do we actually have to give? And like, you could write that out, but you wouldn't write that out in law practice. You'd get on the phone, call quickly and advise of the criminal contempt consequences of following that action. And you'd have urgency in your voice, but you'd have compassion. You'd have action because how do we address the underlying conflict? So I have found that these voice-based tools are really nice because they still do have to be rule-based. So they still ask for students to get into that content, but they also teach tone and professionalism in working with clients. And so I use it particularly in torts and family law where people are coming in and they're hurt either physically in a tort case or emotionally in a family law case. And how you talk to your clients matters greatly. So just recently, for example, I did um, an exercise on Flipgrid, which is another version. It's a little more sort of juvenile looking, but it's really accessible for students and they can record a motion and then you can comment on it as well. So I had all of my students make a child custody argument argument for one side or the other. And then after they had to go listen to the argument that their opponent had made and respond. And you can hear the differences in tone when you're talking about whether your, your, the, the, your, the other parent is a, you know, where the best interests of the child lie. Tone matters greatly. You could say the same thing and have it sound child centered and proactive and focused, or you could say the same thing and sound bitter and spiteful and, and, like a targeted attack. And so those kinds of things are, are really important to teach in torts and family law. Um, and they get out of this sage on the stage model. So it's an entire class where students are talking and it really achieves inclusion. Every student is participating. Every student's voice gets equal airtime. There's no dominant voice um, or marginalized voice, everyone is equally positioned. And so I have found those to be a really dynamic, which is kind of funny, right? Because in a typical class, you'd say, well, the reason we come together in a traditional law school class is so that we can talk in a Socratic method. But that's done in a serial way where I'll talk with student A, and then I'll stop and I'll move to student B, and then I'll stop. And realistically, 
it teaches a disengagement that our students, once they're done, they're like, phew, I'm, I'm done. And now I can move back to being a passive learner. So um, those are tools that I think are particularly exciting. Even as we move back into quote unquote normal teaching, I anticipate keeping a lot of these voice-based tools to really train my students to literally find their voice as lawyers. For better or worse, I've found that a lot of law professors are a little small c conservative about how they approach teaching. For, for that kind of cohort of law professors who kind of have a way that they teach and that they've always taught, what do you anticipate telling them to get them to better understand why the kinds of changes and innovations that you're talking about are things that they ought to take seriously and adopt? One of the things I've been struggling with with each of these projects, so it's really a couple of projects together that we're talking about here, is what do we do with these demands from critical communities telling us that our students are being marginalized or being harmed, that our techniques are not actually working? And I think I've had like a pretty significant epiphany on this, which is to say, you know, that this is actually an imperative. This isn't like a nice request from professors with a vision for what the future looks like. This is what we owe our students. All of our students are paying, you know, theoretically the same intuition, right? Or, and they're, they want to, to get this degree in an equal way. And so one thing I've been thinking about particularly is the way we measure, you know, the, so for example, in recent, um, ABA reforms, we moved heavily toward an approach of setting learning outcomes and saying, in, in this law school, these are our values. In this course, these are my values. And then we are tasked with the idea of measuring those outcomes. But we have no moral imperative or no pedagogical uh, mandate to see that those techniques are affecting all students equally. And so the thing that I would say, I think, to a more reluctant professor or a more comfortable professor in their space is that what might be comfortable to you, if once we really listen to the experiences of students, non-traditional students, LGBT students, women students, student parents, part-time students, students of color, and learn that this sort of dominant sage on the stage professor approach is disempowering, disengaging, marginalizing. I can't imagine learning that and just saying, well, that's too bad that 15% of my class is, is really struggling and really hating, frankly, hating law school. So many of our students are frankly just profoundly unhappy in law school. And so I think that I would switch it from being about just sort of curriculum and like what good curriculum would look like and, and being about the, the, the raw like market piece of this, that we owe all of our consumers and a, a good education that meets all of their needs. So in relation to that and in thinking about what legal education should look like going forward on a kind of practical level. What should faculty members, kind of faculties as a whole, and law school administrators have in mind as they think about coming out of the COVID entirely remote learning era and going back into a new model, whatever that ends up looking like, right? Um, like, what do you think the most important things to keep in mind should be? really starting to look much more objectively to take these experiences and look more carefully. And so, for example, I've never once taken a list of my student grades after they're done and looked with a thoughtful lens 
to equity to say, you know, is there anything, does my exam yield stronger outcomes among any particular community? Do I build, who comes to my office hours? Who's raising their hand in my classes? Um, So I, I do think all of us should at least pause and look anew because we're coming back anew as to what, who's coming to our office hours, who's asking us for references, who is spending their time with us, who is dominating our classrooms and who's achieving in our classrooms. And if that looks exactly like us, it might be a problem. If you're a white male professor, a white woman professor, cisgender professor to say, wait a second, what what else could I be doing to pull in my student body? So first, sort of just a true look in the mirror for all of us of every race, every gender, every teaching technique as to the effectiveness of those techniques. Um, Second, I do think we as institutions really need to look with a much stronger lens to equity. I mean, we are so haphazard in how we govern, right? You know, it's just, we, we pass resolutions, we're responsive to the moment, but as, as a, as faculty sort of governing our institutions, haphazard might be the kindest description to how we actually do things. But what if we actually had, you know, many jurisdictions, um, um, political jurisdictions, for example, are moving toward you know a race and equity toolkit, a lens, a, a way in which we think about the effects. We do it, you know, on, on the federal level. We consider the budget effects of things. We consider the paperwork effects of our decision making. Why don't we stop and consider as we move to this new policy or this requirement or this you know new you know experiential learning expectation or as we do those things, what are the effects going to be? To start to lead more proactively instead of reactively. Why do we need to wait for a, you know, a student group or a, uh, you know, our part-time students to come and knock on the door and say, hey, the way this particular policy is affecting us, let's actually stop from the beginning and just do a good, solid, equitable look to the way we're governing and the way that it might um, influence marginalized communities. And then finally, also, I think workload is a really important discussion. And this pandemic, I think, has has exacerbated on a devastating scale the kinds of workload inequities that we have among student students and among faculty. And so in my larger project, I um, describe what I call the pandemic paradox. And what I mean by that is the idea that we're at this tipping point in legal education where we sit in a situation where we could achieve the kinds of reforms that feminists and critical race theorists have sought for a half a century at the exact same moment that those same communities are drowning in caregiving and in community work and in institutional work. And so, you know, as we come back to, I think we we really could think quite differently about the way we manage the workload. So coming into the online space, you know, there are faculty who just recorded their lectures, uploaded them, and that was the end of it. And there are faculty who went to extraordinary lengths of all seniorities, of all races, of all genders, to try to meet student needs. And so, but yet those same faculty, you know, are, are still, you know, in, you know, working the third shift, trying to get their scholarship written. And so I do think we have seen, and we have, we're at a, a real breaking point in terms of the workload of who's bearing the brunt of what the student needs right now in this pandemic and coming coming out really need to think much more thoughtfully about how we assess what what work we value in our institutions. So Jamie, in closing, I wonder how optimistic you are about the kinds of pedagogical changes and reforms that you're talking about uh, will actually happen on the ground 
in law schools. And I guess in addition, I wonder if there are things you think that we can do as faculty members or as administrators to sort of make it more likely that these kinds of reforms become reality. I'm actually quite optimistic and I'm I'm most optimistic by the numbers of faculty who are who are out there really trying to understand and I mean I daily I'm just adding events to my calendar the programming it's happening at law schools nationwide it's happening in different departments it's happening um, there is an energy behind transforming both how we deliver what we deliver and what we deliver and making sure both the content and the method are thoughtful um, so I do think there's an energy there and that's this concept I use in the um, you know the title of my project is legal education's curricular tipping point and a tipping point is about momentum it's not about majoritarian and so while you know well, it's not about getting most faculty to want to, you know, think more inclusively and thoughtfully about their pedagogy, but it's about following that momentum. And there is a tremendous amount of energy there. So if I were leading a law school right now, I would really want to put, you know, resources and funds available into my faculty who were innovating and to really put those innovations out there. At my home institution, for example, for the first time ever, we launched an innovations in teaching award. It's the perfect time. Like we, we are innovating and we need to celebrate it and celebrate it as much as we celebrate a great placement of, a, of an article. Um, so I, I think that the way to carry the momentum forward is to invest in innovation, to measure more thoughtfully, to see when, when innovations are working and whether when they're achieving um, really good outcomes. Um, and just to keep building community, there are whole communities of, of, um, of teachers that have come together in a way. And like just even using that word teacher, you know, we, we always try to, you know, make ourselves sound so academic. But we're, you know, we've come together as teachers to figure out how to do this more effectively. And I don't see that going away. I, I've had more thoughtful conversations about teaching and I've learned more about teaching myself in this um in this pandemic than I ever have. And it's tiring and I'm exhausted and, you know, it's fatiguing, but it, but I don't see that, that, that momentum and that focus just dissipating once we go back to school. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic actually, and, and really do feel like we're at this tipping point in terms of momentum, even if it's, if, if it's still a minority sort of mathematically who are pushing for these approaches, it's the momentum is there. Well, I admire your optimism. Uh, I, I try to share it and Really, I really deeply hope you're right because uh, I agree that the kinds of changes that you're talking about would be a really positive uh, development and a benefit to legal pedagogy. Thank you so much for the chance to talk about this project. <laughs> of course. Necessary to me. I have boys but five votes. My husband and four sons. Well, uh, I have four votes, and uh, I hope they're going to all always be Democratic votes as well. I'm sure they will because they vote for the right. Vote for the right. Now, now, Miss Daniels, uh, tell us something about uh, your impressions of Orange as their laboratory. I feel that this is a place that makes the world go as well as making the wheels go round. <laughs> no, <wait. laughs> no. <laughs> no. 
Um, would you like to go out and pick some of those big red apples and then go back up the house? I must pick an apple. I've been crazy all summer to get to one tree and get one red apple. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Mrs. Daniels uh, is embarrassed by talking into a round hole here that she can't see anything waking on the other end. So we'll say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>